Chapter 3. The Vomiting Demographic The end of my first attempt to launch Tattoo the Earth coincided with my annual February depression, and I had some dark nights of the soul. Rationally and intellectually, I knew my idea was good, and I knew I had a chance to pull it off. But in the depths of that depression, I felt like the whole thing was folly, and that I was embarrassing myself running around the world on a losing proposition. Just as I sensed that much of the euphoria I was feeling wasn't real, I knew from lugging my depression around my entire life that I just needed to ride the episode out and to try not to make any major decisions or send an ill-advised email while it was happening. Doing a project with depression is like running a race with weights on your legs. It takes twice as much energy to get to the same place. I'd spent a lot of money, hadn't worked for almost a year, and I was starting to feel some financial pressure. At no point did I ever think of stopping. I just needed to retool, which was difficult when I felt so shitty. I made calls and set up meetings and a strategy for my next push. I spoke to the music writer Rob Grossweiner, who suggested the tagline, The Rockin' Ink Tour, which I adopted immediately. And that I contact Kevin Lyman, the founder of The Warp Tour, and Jack Utsick, an independent promoter in Miami. I also had a plan to raise some startup money, and I booked a flight to Vienna for Betsy and me so I could have Bernie Luther finish my tattoo and she could have a change of scene. After a few weeks, I was ready to get back to NYC. My new plan involved pacing myself, cutting back on traveling, and saving money by staying at a middling hotel in Midtown instead of the plaza. Betsy was heading to Florida to be with her family and stopped in NYC the night before I was due to arrive. She stayed at our new hotel, and as I was winding down the Taconic on my way to NYC, phoned to report on its cheap sheets and rancid Kit Kats in the vending machine. Homie isn't playing this game, I thought, and changed course directly back to the plaza. Fuck it, I thought. I'm all in, and if it all goes south, at least I'll be comfortable. Another part of my plan was to go directly to the bands, but I'd been to only a handful of concerts in the past 10 years and was pretty out of touch. Music had been an integral part of my addiction, and I'd pulled away from it and the music business when I got clean. I'd started in the music business at 18 when, after getting thrown out of college, I got a job at a rock club. Over the next few years, I became a road manager and agent for major jazz artists, and I bought a jazz club in New York City on my 23rd birthday. A combination of bad luck and my burgeoning heroin addiction scuttled my music business career, and I fully descended into drugs until I read Kerouac's On the Road and became a voracious reader. A short time later, I had the epiphany that let me get clean and started my recovery from my addiction. I found my answers in books. Reading was the catalyst for getting off drugs, and it gave me a framework for living out of the closet. I spent the first few years clean getting a degree in English from Columbia University with hopes of becoming a writer, and worked at an AIDS hospice in gratitude for having somehow not gotten AIDS. My life was the opposite of what it had been when I was using drugs, and music wasn't a big part of it. Then, for five years, I'd worked the corporate job that had depleted my creativity and my interest in anything but making money. I needed to catch up with what I'd missed. Betsy, who was 10 years younger than me, turned me on to some new bands that I liked. Radiohead, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, and I saw that a sea change had taken place in music. The hair bands and homogenization of rock artists like David Bowie and Hart during the peak MTV years in the 1980s had given way to grunge, hip-hop, and metal. 
Artists like Nirvana, Eminem, and Metallica became huge and crossed over into the mainstream. Metal and hip-hop artists were heavily tattooed, and that's where I wanted to find a band that embodied the outsider sensibility so deep in tattoo culture. Rock bands like Nirvana, Rage Against the Machine, and Nine Inch Nails reminded me of the bands I'd grown up with. I knew that I would have lost my mind to them if those bands had arrived on the scene when I was a teenager. But the musical structure of some metal and hip-hop was completely foreign to my ear. I needed a melody and a chorus and a bridge. Heavy metal bands like Metallica and Slayer just didn't move me, especially the fast, head-banging speed metal. I got the lyrics, and I knew what it was like to be alienated and on the fringes. I struggled with my sexuality growing up in the 1970s and lived a double life, and a lie, until I got off dope and came out as bisexual in my 20s, considered a cop-out at the time because you couldn't be two things, and being Jewish had always made me feel like an outsider and marginalized, too. I had a foot in many worlds, but didn't entirely belong in any of them. I got what these bands were writing about. I felt I needed to experience what was going on at that moment and not just read about it, to build a festival that was authentic. I put on my black jeans, a black t-shirt, a worn pair of Kenneth Cole half boots with the laces removed, inspired by Bernie Luther, and my Calvin Klein leather jacket. Like Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now, who went airborne at 38 with kids half his age, I was getting out of the boat and heading into the mosh pit. My first stop back in NYC was Sean's shop. It was great to see him and to feed off his energy again as I told him about my new direction. He agreed I needed to pace myself and had news on some tattoo artists he had contacted. There was a kid in the shop who overheard us talking and jumped right in, telling us the connections he had in the music business and how he could get tickets for any show we wanted to see that night. The kid was in his early 20s and it hit me that he typified the demographic of Tattoo the Earth's fans. He loved hip-hop and rap metal, Janko clothing, Jägermeister, MTV, and going to concerts. He was practically hyperventilating, telling me everything he could do for me. Sean and I shot each other glances and I told the kid to chill out. But the kid picked up his cell phone, got Sendog from Cypress Hill on the line, and started telling him about our project. I'd heard of Cypress Hill, though I didn't know a lot about them, and I'd never heard of Sendog. But Sean was nodding his head, his glasses on the tip of his nose, indicating that the introduction was for real. Cypress Hill were part of that post-MTV emergence of hip-hop and were among the first California Latino-influenced hip-hop groups to have mainstream crossover. The group was founded by Sendog, B-Real, and DJ Muggs in L.A. in the 1980s when they were teenagers, and by the mid-90s, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. They'd killed at Woodstock 1994 and headlined at Lollapalooza. I had a short chat with Sendog, who was receptive, and told him I'd send him a pitch book and ring him next time I was in L.A. I gave the kid a few pitch books and told him I'd get in touch after my trip to Austria. The kid was hyper, maybe well-connected, immediately committed to tattoo the earth, but he also seemed utterly and completely full of shit. A few days later, Bernie had just about finished my sleeve at his shop in Vienna. Betsy and I visited some cool cemeteries and St. Stephen's Catacomb with its basement walls of bones deposited during the Great Plague. Bernie agreed to do the tour. He was the first named tattooist to jump on board. The sleeve looked incredible, and I couldn't stop looking at it. 
I used white ink to outline a series of small triangles in the crook of my arm. The whole piece was completely unique. My tattoo made me feel like I had a bionic limb, and I held it awkwardly as I stared at it, trying to get used to its power. Betsy liked it. She also liked the fact that I'd gotten tattooed on the road, so I'd leave ink and blood imprints on the hotel sheets instead of on our own at home. Back in NYC, the kid had flooded me with emails. Be Real from Cypress Hill wants to do the tour, and they're ready to meet us in L.A. He wants to introduce me to potential sponsors and says members of Limp Biscuit and Stained are interested, and on and on. He wants us to go out to L.A. immediately, but I wasn't buying the kid a plane ticket based on one phone call. The kid acted hurt because I was skeptical and wondered what it would take to convince me he wasn't bullshitting. Sean had told me the Rolling Stones were playing in Philadelphia a few nights later, so I told the kid if he got me in to see the show, I'd buy him a ticket and we'd fly out to L.A. to see Cypress. Next thing I know, I was watching the Stones in Philadelphia. The kid had done it. Though when I saw the person who'd put us on the guest list, I asked him how he knew the kid. He said he didn't. He had never met him. He was actually not sure how we'd gotten added to the list, though he knew he authorized it. After the show, the kid admitted he'd pulled the Stones passes out of his ass and hadn't been sure they'd manifest until we were actually in the arena. The kid did have balls and had earned a trip out to L.A., even though he had also already shown himself to be pretty disgusting. He'd emptied the minibar at the hotel after the concert in Philly, and when we spent a night at my house in Massachusetts before we flew west, he'd gotten profoundly drunk. Betsy looked at me like I was crazy. But I told her about Cypress Hill and the Stones concert and how he was my demographic. Well, your demographic is upstairs vomiting, she informed me. She spent most of the night hiding with her sister in the den while the kid blasted music and dry heaved. Our chocolate Labrador puppy, Walter, was a total mush, like a teddy bear. He bit the kid. It was the first time we ever saw him even bare his teeth. Granted, we'd had Wally's balls removed a few days earlier, but it was still out of character. Betsy shook her head as the kid and I left for the airport and told me she hoped it was worth it. I was having serious doubts about our trip. What the fuck was I doing with this idiot? But I had come this far with the kid, and it was worth the risk. He had a fucked up family life, learning disabilities, and a giant chip on his shoulder. He'd been dismissed his entire life. But he loved music and the action and he believed in my idea. I was following a path. He was on it, and it had been pretty entertaining so far. I relaxed and let go. I was in a scene from a dumb buddy movie, I told myself. The script had been written. I just needed to play my role. I put the kid in a motel on the outskirts of L.A. and gave strict instructions to the staff to not under any circumstances let him charge anything to my credit card. I stayed in West Hollywood, and when I got back to the motel to pick him up, he had a huge black eye. I didn't even want to know how it happened, and immediately felt a sense of dread and embarrassment. That first night, we went by a radio station to see Be Real at his weekly radio show. He was cordial, wary, and busy, and said he hoped we could meet before I left. The kid also introduced me to Estevan Oriol, a photographer and music video director who was also Cyprus's tour manager. Estevan and I ditched the kid and went to Mr. Cartoon's tattoo shop where Cartoon did a cool black and gray trippy skull thing on my shoulder above Bernie's tattoo. As I had done with Bernie, I just gave him the space on my arm and he freehanded a design. 
Estevan and Cartoon were partners in a clothing line, and Cartoon was the tattoo artist of choice for Cypress Hill and many other rappers and athletes. They were taking West Coast Latino lowrider culture to the mainstream. The kid and I had dinner with Sendog at Benihana. It was becoming apparent at each meeting that the band only knew the kid peripherally and thought he was full of shit. In private, I told Sendog that I, however, was for real and how I'd just met the kid and that I'd like to come back out with Sean. The last night there, at the last minute, B-Real agreed to meet with us at a Korean barbecue restaurant off La Cienega and he showed up with six members of his crew. The dinner was cordial and expensive. I gently pitched the show and got an assurance we could meet again the next time I was in L.A. The kid had come through. By some miracle, he'd pulled off the introduction. But now he had to be cut loose. He was too much of a liability and a deal-breaker where Cyprus was concerned. They wanted nothing to do with him. We had some laughs at the kid's expense. No one in the group could figure out how he'd gotten their phone numbers or even how he'd gotten connected with them at all. The kid created a tornado of disinformation, and we had all been sucked up into it. I'd figured out how to compensate him later, but he was a problem and needed to be kept at a distance. A few days later, after I got back from L.A., I was off to Miami to meet with Jack Utsick, the independent promoter who music writer Bob Grossweiner had recommended I see. I'd sent a pitch book and spoken to Naomi Fabricant, one of his staff. She was in charge of evaluating new proposals and separated them into three piles. Mine, she told me, was in the look-at-now pile. I could sense Naomi's enthusiasm over the phone. She thought Tattoo the Earth was forward-thinking and that tattooing was going to be huge, and she knew Jack would be interested in hearing more about it. When I met her, I discovered that she was my age. She reminded me of the crazy Jewish girls I tried to make out with at summer camp when I was a teenager. Jack Utsick was a former airline pilot who had made a fortune bringing the hair replacement treatment Rogaine to the U.S. He would later go to prison for 18 years when his business was exposed as a $200 million fraud, but in 1999 he wanted to be in the music business but was having trouble breaking in. He had promoted some big shows, but no tours or anything substantive. He was an outsider, and regardless of how much money he had, he wasn't allowed in the game. I met with Jack at his penthouse in Miami, and as I walked into the main room to introduce myself to his lawyer, I almost stepped onto a gigantic antique mirror that was face up on the floor being cleaned. Easy there, the lawyer said as he grabbed my arm and pulled me back from the mirror, my foot an inch away from crashing into it. It's a long way down. I bet it is, I replied. Jack was enthusiastic and said he wanted in, but that I still had a lot of work to do before he'd invest. I told him I was working on Cypress Hill and some other bands, Stained, Limp Biscuit, and that I would keep in touch with Naomi and let him know when I got some commitments. A few days later, Sean and I were in L.A. to meet with the Cypress crew without the kid, and we were starting to get somewhere. Sean and I were a force on the road, a byproduct of my having spent so much time getting tattooed by him. There's a synergy between an artist and client during a tattoo session, and Sean and I were forming a strong kinship. You sit there for hours, many times in various stages of undress, positioned in some weird manner under bright lights, and it hurts, and the machine buzzes and buzzes. If you look closely at a tattoo machine's needles puncturing the skin, it looks like oil rig pistons smashing the earth, 
except it's blood flying off and not dirt. You're in pain and vulnerable, and it hurts more the longer it goes on. I was usually good for three hours before I started squirming, grabbing something with each touch of the machine, every muscle in my body tightening. You want to stop, but you won't because you're in deep with this other person and you want to cross the finish line with them. Sean could tell when I'd start to struggle. Break or keep going, he'd ask, making sure to make eye contact. Or, don't forget to breathe, bro. You get that close and intimate with someone for so long, vulnerable for so long, you can't help but feel some love. You're in the trenches with this person, and he's an artist with a technical proficiency. But he's also your friend, shrink, priest, pimp, and advisor, whatever you need him to be to get through that tattoo. Now Sean was my partner and road buddy, and we were becoming an unstoppable force. Sean and I had Easter dinner at Sendog's house. We had another dinner with Be Real and hung out in the studio. Sean and I had smoked a ton of pot in our lives, but whatever got passed to us in the studio rendered us almost mute. It felt like we were tripping. We somehow ended up at a compound in south-central L.A. with some tweaking cholos doing gas mask bong hits deep into the night. Now I was in a great buddy movie with Sean, and I couldn't wait to see what happened next. Estevan and Beriel said I should come hang out when they played in Hartford and Springfield, Massachusetts, and I did, and had a good time. It was the first hip-hop I got into, and I liked the music, the stoner sensibility, and all the skulls in their branding. Then I flew to Indianapolis to see them, and that's when I started hanging out with DJ Muggs, the third founding member of Cyprus. Muggs was from Queens, and we bonded over our shared New York roots. As DJ of the group, he chose the music to sample to go with the raps, and much of his choices were standards and rock music I listened to as a kid, like sampling Dusty Springfield's Son of a Preacher Man for the Cypress song Hits from the Bong, or sampling Jimi Hendrix for How I Could Kill a Man. A few weeks later, I went with Cypress Hill to Europe for a few festival dates in Austria and Germany. We spent a few days in Vienna, and like most bands on the road, they broke off into factions. B-Real was private and guarded, and I didn't spend much time with him. Sendog was also off on his own. I pulled a couple of all-nighters with DJ Muggs and Estevan, smoking copious amounts of weed, bullshitting and sightseeing around Vienna. I took them to St. Stephen's Catacombs, and they were blown away by the walls of compacted human bones. We visited another catacomb, and there were open coffins strewn about and we were standing on ten feet of human bone. The plague must have been hell, we all agreed, and Estevan took some photos that would find their way onto the cover of the next album, Skull and Bones. They were a good hang, and we were never at loss for shit to talk about and had a lot of laughs. I rented a car, and though I was assured by Estevan that a parking space near the catacombs was legal, when we returned, the car had been towed. Muggs and Estevan shot each other glances like they were planning a getaway, and I told them they'd gotten me into this mess and weren't going anywhere. We took a cab to the impound lot, and after a long wait and a heaping dose of Germanic bureaucratic terrorism, we were told I needed my passport. I called the cab and the lady in charge told us we couldn't wait inside. The three of us sat on the curb and lay back onto the pavement. It was dark. It had started raining and we hadn't slept in days. These guys were all right, I thought. They could have bailed, but they saw it through. 
When you hang sleepless with someone and go on adventures together, you get a feel for them. We ultimately got the car back and the next day the band took off in their bus for Germany. And I took the Autobahn from Vienna to Nürburgring, smoking joints, drinking Red Bull, and driving 225 kilometers with the radio cranked all the way up. Rock M Ring takes place at Formula One racetrack and is one of two giant festivals taking place simultaneously in Germany in spring. There were five bands playing the main stage that year. Metallica headlined and Cyprus played before them. Cyprus performed in front of 50,000 people and then we hung out near the dressing room trailers waiting for Metallica to go on. We were told we could go up on stage and watch once the band got on stage and there were a decent number of musicians waiting with us. It had been raining and the grounds were muddy and as Metallica made their way to the stage, we saw their drummer Lars Ulrich being carried piggybacked by a roadie through the grounds and up the stairs of the stage. You know I'm a rock star. Real said, shaking his head, and I never do that shit. Just so you know, don't think I'm carrying any of you motherfuckers, Estevan declared to the band. Metallica were the real deal. A full-on stadium band, and though I'd never been a fan, I got sucked in immediately. It was a melodic assault, mighty and foreboding, and you didn't need to be into them to appreciate it. The power, the connection with the fans, and the authenticity. It was inspiring to see it all from the stage. I stood next to Lars's drums and his clean sneakers, and the guy was like a machine. I looked out over 50,000 people and closed my eyes. I leaned over to Muggs and Esteban. Metallica's going to play my New York Tattoo the Earth show, I told them. It's a done deal. When I got back home, Be Real said that Cyprus was in and told me to send a letter of interest to their agent. A few days later, I was watching MTV, and they had a news clip with B-Real talking about a new Cyprus album and how the band was going to be doing Tattoo the Earth. I went down to Miami to meet with Jack Utsick and Naomi, and we decided to send out offer letters to Kid Rock, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Orgy, and Everlast with an offer for a 1999 fall tour. The offer letters were rejected pretty quickly, and then Cyprus's agent indicated the band might not be available. B-Real started hedging, told me to be patient, and all the momentum stopped. What the fuck? I'd gotten a band and someone to put up the money, and I was dead in the water. That's how I learned that one of the reasons it was difficult for outsiders to get real access to talent was because it often didn't matter what the bands wanted. The live music business seems like a vast, complicated enterprise, but it is controlled by relatively few people. In any given time, in any given genre, there are a small number of artists that can sell out a stadium, arena, or amphitheater, if they're even planning to tour, and they are controlled by a handful of agents. Jack Utsick had millions of dollars to invest, but it didn't matter. They only allowed him to nibble at the edges. A full tour with a level of talent like ours was off the table. Agents and managers were the key, but I was nowhere close to finding one. No agent I had spoken to had shown much enthusiasm, and I was struggling with what my next steps might be to keep the thing alive. I was still undeterred for the most part, but I was physically run down from nonstop traveling and too much alcohol and debauching. I was getting tattooed regularly on the road, so I was constantly sore and healing, and I started losing weight and having terrible stomach problems. I'd had hepatitis C for 13 years, and though I'd never had any symptoms, I shouldn't have been drinking. 
I tried to limit myself to just smoking pot all day, but it was hard not to do other things on the road. I was getting so thin I looked like I was dying. The first doctor I saw in my small town in Massachusetts told me, without giving me any tests, that I probably had liver cancer. I thought I was a goner. I'd been obsessed with death as a kid, and it had shaped my sensibility. I was smack dab in the middle of several high-risk groups for AIDS and NYC in the 1980s and somehow survived when most everyone didn't. Many of the people I got clean with in Narcotics Anonymous died. And after working at the AIDS hospice, I always felt like I was a ghostly survivor living on borrowed time. And then I watched as my parents died early, and badly, and screaming from cancer. So dying young seemed to make sense. Frankly, I was surprised to even be alive at all, and the irony didn't escape me. I knew I was getting close with Tattoo the Earth, and I still believed it could be big, and now I was going to be like Jonathan Larson with Rent and die right before my dream came true. But I wasn't going out afraid and screaming. Though I had been a wussy my whole life when it came to my own pain, all the death and suffering I'd seen pushed me to withstand as much punishment as possible. I'd get tattooed for four hours, have a steak, get my nipple pierced, then go play in a dungeon, then go out all night, and then finish the tattoo for a couple of hours the next day. I'd never had any interest in testing the limits of my own pain tolerance before, but something had changed in the past year, especially after my mother died. And I guess I needed to know that I could withstand any horror that might attack my body. After several more alarmist doctors, one thought I had Crohn's disease, I found a surgeon I trusted in Manhattan who told me I had gallstones and that I needed to have my gallbladder removed. Turns out I'd gotten the parasite Giardia from the well water at my house and it had ravaged my innards. My liver and everything else were okay and the surgery went fine, but I was weak and shaken and running out of ideas. I sacrificed an organ for the rock and ink tour. I told Sean, but it will take more than that to stop me.